Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers Season 3, Part 14, Back in Town. What's going on in Twin Peaks, uh, organized by the different storylines. We don't see Ben and Beverly in this episode, but we do get a little of their storyline in the sense that James checks the furnace room in the basement of the Great Northern, and he hears that hum. In fact, I think he's checking it out because Ben called down and asked them to. So actually, this is more directly related to the Ben and Beverly storyline than I thought, although it's going in a new direction now. And as he's wandering around down there listening to that noise, he sees a closed door, another little mystical scene in this episode. In Twin Peaks, that story section, we've got the Cooper investigation uh, pretty much dominating this episode. We have Frank telling Gordon about the diary pages that indicate two Coopers. When Gordon calls him up at the station, he says, well, Hawk and I found this old diary, and Gordon's pretty interested in that. We'll talk about that in the FBI section. Bobby brings some lunch into the sheriff's station. Chad walks in, and he gets arrested right away. Uh, they don't even say what for, which is kind of funny. It's like he's done so many bad things, it, it, just, it could be anything. It almost doesn't matter. They take him down to the jail cell, and then Bobby, Frank, Andy, and Hawk all go into the woods to follow Major Briggs' clues that they found a couple days earlier. They go to Jack Rabbit's Palace, which is this big tree stump. Bobby mentions that it's near the listening post where his father worked, and uh, that he's you know been up there, and there's all this machinery and stuff, which is an interesting image to have in our minds as we're walking through nature there. At Jack Rabbit's Palace, they pick up some dirt, put it in their pocket. That was part of the advice that Major Briggs passed along to them, uh, I think. I don't think Bobby was the one who said it. I think it was in, in the instructions they found in the little capsule. They walk through the woods. It gets foggier. There's some electrical current haze zapping through. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but they find a naked woman lying in the ferns, and it's NATO who fell from that uh, space capsule or whatever way back in Part 3. Somebody we probably didn't expect to see again, but here she is. And she's lying there naked, and Andy picks her up. And then the leaves, the trees start to move. Something's happening up in the sky. We'll talk about that more in the uh, spirit world section, because I think at this point we start to transfer into another location. But after this encounter's over, Bobby, uh, Frank, and Hawk, and probably Andy, have no memory. Although Andy has, like, a knowledge. I don't know if he remembers exactly what happened or why it happened or what it means but uh, he has some kind of intuition or understanding that's been embedded in him by what he experienced when he was sucked into the vortex. Andy carries Nato out from behind the tree stump. They're all back at Jack Rabbit's palace, so I guess what happened is by putting that dirt in their pocket, they anchored themselves to a certain place. He says that she's very important, and people want her dead, and they have to keep her safe. So they take her back to the sheriff's station. Lucy and Andy dress her in a robe, and they lock her up in her cell, and she's there for safekeeping. They probably have a sense that it's something to do with the Cooper investigation. Certainly, the Cooper investigation led to this, so that storyline is probably the most important in this episode. One thing to note, as I I was watching it is there's a scene where they're kind of climbing up a little hill from a creek and we get the sense they're already probably deep in the woods and maybe they are however i have to say when i went to see the twin peaks locations a few weeks ago i looked at the spot where the sign was where in the opening credits you see the little sign you see the mountains in the background the turn of the road and right at that dirt spot if you literally turn just right to your right is a spot that looks exactly like where they're climbing out so i wonder if that scene where they're climbing out above the little stream or creek up the little mound is actually right next to the 
road with the sign, which would be pretty funny. It is a cool spot, and I was looking at it like, wow, this is a cool location that's never in Twin Peaks, and now I'm like, hmm, maybe it is. Also, something else to observe is the characters experiencing that kind of memory loss. It's reminiscent of earlier in the episode, something we'll talk about in the FBI section, when Albert and Gordon remember Jeffries, and it's like they'd forgotten him for 25 years. For the Sarah storyline, Sarah goes to Elks Point Number 9 bar, and she's harassed by a patron there. She removes her face, bites his neck, and kills him. That's about the simplest way to describe what happens in this fascinating, disturbing, really rich little scene. This episode aired in August 2017, and I believe within about six weeks, certainly within two months, the whole Me Too scandal broke. And obviously, even at this time, there was already a lot of discussion online of sexual harassment and the every just the everyday things that women often have to go through. There's very little that they can often do about it, and this was read by many people as a kind of vindicating revenge scene where she's actually able to do to this man what so many women want to do when some asshole just comes up and starts bothering them and insulting them and, and intimidating them. Like, he switches from just being this guy at the bar who's, you know, maybe a little desperate for attention or whatever to just this absolute viciousness and using his presence and his voice to intimidate her. And she comes back at him when he's saying, you know, he's gonna eat her out and all this stuff. And she says, I'll eat you. And that's when the scene starts to shift and the whole power dynamic and energy shifts. She turns towards him and removes her face. That's something I want to hold off on to Lodge Lord. There is a lot to talk about with her removing her face. To start with the most trivial aspect of this scene, though, uh, or I guess to end up there, I love the neon sign outside the bar. It's so cool. It really makes me want to see like a Tumblr photo set of neon signs throughout Twin Peaks, like One-Eyed Jacks and um, some of the other ones that are in the first and second season. But in this season, you have like Max Vaughn's, that bar that uh, Albert finds Diana at. Lynch just loves making neon signs. You see it in Blue Velvet. You see it in Mulholland Drive and all these different places. It's just got a, such a cool look and he does a great job with that here. As this scene began uh, on this rewatch, I couldn't, I forgot that it was in this episode. I mean, I knew it was in this episode, but I forgot it exists. Like, I wasn't thinking of this scene at the time. And I was thinking, what else comes? I know there's something more after, like, the Monica Bellucci dream and the walk into the forest and Freddie describing the glove. I know there's, like, one other big scene in this, but, and then she came in and was like, oh, yeah, that's right. This, like, this is a hell of an episode, like, to have all that stuff in it. The truck you shirt that the guy wears looks to me a lot like Lynch's handwriting. You see his handwriting a lot because all his paintings seem to have writing on them. So it's a, it's a familiar look. And uh, I'm, I would definitely, I would be shocked if he didn't design, write that t-shirt himself. I remember when this episode aired, people were really did not like, I saw very divided takes on this. And actually, particularly among women. In fact, if, you know, for female listeners, if you have a particular angle on this, I'd definitely be interested to hear what your perspective on this scene is because I heard some commentators, I remember one in particular, she hated this scene and felt that it was just basically Lynch's excuse to, you know, throw some misogyny in there uh, under the guise of it being, oh, isn't it terrible that this is happening, but that it was just really forceful and ugly and unnecessary. I'll be honest, even to, to a little extent, I kind of felt like, did it gain anything by using that particular word? And I know for British listeners, it's probably like, what? Like that... You know, that's a word that kind of has a different usage in the UK and the US. Uh, here, it's just, it's it's almost like the N-word for women. 
uh, whereas UK is just more of like a common insult. There were other commentators who felt like, oh no, this is actually a scene of total empowerment and loved it. I remember one writer, Cezanne Couleur, whose work I really enjoyed throughout uh, the season. She ended up having a negative take on the return overall, but along the way she wrote some really interesting things about it. And at one point she wrote an article talking about cultural appropriation and people, people got really upset. And one of them made a meme of Sarah taking off her face and Cezanne's face photoshopped in as like the demon underneath or something. And she would like took it as a compliment. She's like, well, that's a great scene. I'd love to be Sarah taking that mask off and being that kind of badass. And uh, that's interesting in a number of ways. First of all, because whoever made that meme obviously felt like Sarah taking her face off was a negative and a monstrous thing. And it's certainly a frightening, disturbing thing. But is it really negative? I mean, it's self-defense. This guy is threatening her. And uh, <laughs> I think this is a key scene in the sense that it shows a kind of raw, dangerous, violent female power that I think underlies the return. And to be clear, too, it's a raw, violent female power that stems from a sense of defending oneself from trauma and abuse that, that one has already experienced. This is the case with Diane. This is the case with Sarah. It's the case with Laura. And I just think that's an underlying phenomenon of this season, which on the surface is a very masculine season. You know, to use these, I know they're somewhat reductive gender dichotomies, but I think with Lynch... He's working with that idea a lot. Uh, that just that it's like the blonde brunette divide, where he takes these differences and it sort of exaggerates them and uses them in an allegorical way. That's to start to dig into that scene, but we'll talk much more about it in the lodge lore section. For the Roadhouse story section, we meet Megan and Sophie. Megan is wearing Paula's sweater. She tells Sophie she saw Billy bleeding from the nose and mouth. Her mother's name is Tina. She had a thing with Billy. Billy ran through their house when he was bleeding the other day. Who knows what all this means. Megan doesn't remember if her uncle was there. I'm just literally reciting the things that happened. Uh, but this is one of those scenes. It's interesting because here he's doing the same thing he did with Freddie or with Hastings, where someone is describing something, but it has a different feel to me. Those scenes feel more like well, we're describing this because it's an important plot point, but it's funnier to listen to or weirder to listen to in a way than it would be to show because there's almost too much happening. Whereas this scene, this feels like a Lynchian scene. This feels almost like something he could show, but by not showing it and just describing it, it becomes even stranger and you kind of long to reach out and, and find it and, and actually see it. Like this feels like something you could see, but he's withholding. It's probably the best way I could describe it. They talk about this place that they're living as being a nut house. It's interesting because the guy bleeding from his mouth, people assumed that the bleeding man in the jail cell who accosts Chad, that that guy was Billy. Because like, well, we just heard about a guy bleeding from his mouth or nose or whatever, and here's a guy bleeding that way. So um, that must be the same person. It could be, but I think the fact that these characters are always talking about these names that Audrey uses. Lynch loves the unknown. He loves having something that we partially understand but we don't quite get uh, whether that be through people describing it or through witnessing something that's kind of uncanny and inexplicable he's talked about seeing somebody pass by a window with a knife and you're sitting in your house looking out the window and you see them and you go oh my god are they going to kill someone or is that just are they just going to the kitchen to cut something up and you start you know it makes you dream he likes to say you start thinking about what it could be that's a very rear window thing you know he's a big hitchcock fan and 
I mean, that's literally Rear Window. It's literally the plot of Rear Window. But I think that's a helpful way to see a lot of what he's doing in this iteration of Twin Peaks in season three. All of these character stories, most explicitly Roadhouse, but even with characters who appear more often, like Richard or especially Becky and, and Shelley and Bobby, we're looking in through that window and gathering the pieces we can and trying to add them up and and see what we think about them that way. Lynch's wife is in this scene, by the way. She is, uh, I believe, Sophie, the one that the other woman is talking to, and she's just kind of the listener there. And there's a very eerie moment where she says, "Who's? what's your mother's name again? And the other woman says, Tina. And then this music begins building really ominously and and kind of disturbingly. And I remembered it a little differently. I remembered the music building and like, what's she going to say? Is she going to say Audrey's the name of the mother? And then she says Tina as the music escalates. But actually, no, she says Tina and then the music escalates. And I like that much more because it's like by saying this name, she's opening some kind of Pandora's box or, you know, a blue box, I suppose. Speaking of which, the dread that this scene builds just out of that little dialogue reminds me a lot of stuff in Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, especially the Lee Grant scene where the neighbor comes up to the door in the hood and she's pointing. I don't think there's any music in that sequence. I think it's actually a kind of a still silent sequence, but she comes up to the door and she's pointing around. She's going, somebody's in there. Someone's in there. And she's looking around the door at Ni around Naomi Watts. The other woman says, sometimes she's not telling, you know, she doesn't know what's going on, but sometimes she does. If there's trouble in there, get it out. <laughs> you know, it's a great little sequence. And there's just, there's a lot of that stuff in Mulholland Drive. I look forward to reading people's theories, uh, their grand unified theory of the roadhouse talking about what these characters are referring to and see if they can come up with something fun for that. Of course, you know, whether Lynch has his own idea or if he doesn't know he once said uh, i think in catching the big fish his book about meditation there's like a chapter called the blue box and the blue key and the only sentence in that chapter is i have no idea what these mean some people really dislike the song that's sung at the end of the scene wild wild west by lise i really like it i'm not even sure why it's just it's one of my favorite ones that i've listened to quite a lot there's something pretty evocative about it i think all of these musical endings particularly this one and some of the chromatics ones, they leave us with a sense of longing. And that goes back to what I talked about, about the feel of this episode, that there's like a missing object or a missing center in a way. And I think the passage of years play a huge part in that. It's like there was this time or this place where we were closer to something, where we were closer to understanding what it is, even if it's something you don't want to understand that you're running from in a way, uh, some kind of trauma. But you're closer to it and then you're further away. And this is like, this whole series, the third season, is the dull ache of being further away from it through the passage of time, through distance in some cases. You know, they've sort of strayed away from Twin Peaks and coming back and you're like at the scene of the crime, but everything's kind of, it's grown over and it's it's kind of gone away in a way. And uh, there's just something haunting about that. And you feel that throughout the whole series, but never more, to, to at least in my eyes, through, or ears, I should say, than in those ending, those concluding musical sequences. Because we're like on the verge of finding something out or hearing, you know, we're hearing this conversation between people at the roadhouse and wondering, what's the story? What's going on? And the music begins and we just get kind of wrapped up in it. And it's like, we'll never know. And there's just such a poignancy to that that I love. The Freddy storyline has a real breakthrough this episode. We haven't seen him since the two-part premiere, but now he's sitting outside the Great Northern with James. They're both security guards. It looks like they're waiting for a delivery, and they're sitting on the edge of this precipice and trying to open walnuts, and he's just crushing them all with his green glove on his hand. Like, he's just too strong for him. So he tells James 
his story of how he saw this vortex in London and it opened up in the sky when he was thinking that he wanted to do something else with his life and then he met the fireman who told him to find a green glove. He goes to the store where it's supposed to be and he needs to get just one, not both of them. He won't let him buy just one glove, which is funny because it's like, well, why not just buy two of them? But he's like, no, no, I like, I've, I've got to buy just the one, but I'll pay you for both of them. And so the, the other guy, the clerk is like insistent and they get into a fight and Freddie ends up like, <laughs> hitting him in the Gregory or something, some ridiculous British slang that isn't actually British slang, as I'm sure the uh, British listeners could tell us. But he basically, I don't know if he kills the guy. They kind of pass over it pretty lightly. He pretty badly injures him and runs away with the glove. And uh, the fireman in his vision told him he had to go to Twin Peaks to fulfill his destiny. So he goes to the uh, airport and or the travel agency or whatever, and his ticket is actually already bought. Uh, so he's somebody's already taken care of him. This is a very literal, I don't know if literal is the right word, but like this is not how we usually deal with Twin Peaks mythology. And it's interesting. This is one of those scenes where Lynch has something described rather than shown. Or I should say Lynch and Frost, because I'm presuming they never wrote it to be shown. They wrote it to be described. And it works better as a story. I mean, although it's funny to imagine Lynch trying to shoot this whole convoluted thing as an actual sequence. Uh, it's absurd and amusing, and of course it, it is better this way, but it's funny to think about. The other scene that's like this, where we have a really complicated mythological scene that's very, like, rather than mysterious, it's just kind of direct and on the nose, is Hastings talking about his encounter with the Major, with him and Ruth seeing this vision and the woodsman coming to get them. That's another scene, obviously, where it's just described rather than shown. In that case, that feels totally Mark Frost to me. That feels very, very, very in Frost's wheelhouse. I would have thought this scene was as well. I mean, even to the fact that Frost has written uh, superhero movies, and this is clearly like a parody of a superhero origin story. However, in interviews, Lynch has said that this was his idea, this idea of the green glove, that it was something that, you know, he had going way back and he was finally able to incorporate in something. So that was kind of a surprise. Maybe he had just had the idea of the green glove and Frost kind of wrote out the details and made it more of like a superhero origin story. I don't know, but I, I get a kick out of it. And it was funny watching it at the time, too, because you just got this long, mystical, hard-to-pin-down scene of Andy and the fireman with no dialogue just a long meditative immersion in this space. And then you get this very dry but wacky description of a similar event on uh, Freddy's part. There's also a corny Beatles reference, of course. It works because it's, you know, day in the life, switching between these two modes of consciousness, the Lennon, dreamy and mystical, and the McCartney, very mundane and down-to-earth and straightforward. Frost has actually compared himself, him and Lynch's collaboration, saying he's more of a McCartney figure and and Lynch is more of a Lennon. So that's a funny bit of insert there. I don't know if that was on Frost's part or what, and maybe that's a little bit of a call out to that and to this idea of describing something in this plain way and then also showing it in a more visually driven way. And I shouldn't say plain to the extent, like Frost's writing is actually very flowery and descriptive and evocative. So it's like describing something in a verbal way and seeing something in a visual way. And the correspondence to that in the day in a day in the life, which is structured as that variation. For the James storyline, uh, he's mostly there to listen to Freddie. However, uh, Freddie does mention, oh, that, you know, because James says, we'll go to the roadhouse. And Freddie says, oh, you want to see Renee? And he reminds him that she's married. So now we know that this woman that James was looking at in the first episode, where she seemed just like a crush that, you know, he didn't speak to, 
and then that he was singing to in the next episode. So it seemed like, oh, well, actually, now they're together. Maybe they got together between these two episodes. And now we're getting a third wrinkle in that of like, oh, he likes her and maybe she likes him a little too, but she's married. And this is good old James at 25 years. So he's about, he's probably turning 43. This episode takes place supposedly on his birthday. 43 or 44, you know, if we want to do the math, this takes place 2016. This shows 1989, early 89. And he's, I think, 18 in that. So yeah, I would say this is probably probably 46th birthday, the character. Point being, that was a long segue, but he's still going through all those same things he was as a teenager with Evelyn Marsh, with Donna and Maddie, with Laura, where he's just longing for this woman he can't have and being a romantic fool and making a fool of himself. For the other characters and storylines in Twin Peaks, we touch briefly on Harry because Gordon asks about Harry Truman and of course finds out he's sick and tells Frank to, to wish him well. So that's a nice little touch. There's all these mentions of Harry throughout the whole series. Michael Otkin was supposed to play Harry Truman in this series. Uh, Frank's part was written for him. Uh, presumably they rewrote a little bit here and there, but I think it's pretty much supposed to be his character, which is interesting because Robert Forster brings such a different energy to it than Michael Antkeen. So it's interesting to imagine all of these exact same scenes, but with Michael Antkeen performing them. It's an interesting way to think about how just a change of actor, not a change of dialogue, not a change of character motivation, etc., can have such a different impact. Late in the game, we get what I would call a new storyline, although it builds out of some old storylines, and that's Chad in jail. We have Frank arresting Chad. Later, we see him down in the cell there's this bleeding drunk man there who's got like scabs all over him and his face is bleeding, his mouth is bleeding, and he just repeats everything Chad says, you're no kind of cop and all this type of stuff. And he repeats NATO's squawking and just becomes this really cacophonous presence there. Chad tells him to shut up and is frustrated and covers his ears. Somebody mentioned once on a podcast that uh, I think it was maybe uh, Twin Peaks Rewatch podcast they wondered if i'm not sure it might have been another one i can't remember which one it was but they wondered if chad was the only one who could actually see or hear this bleeding man maybe this was like his almost like his personal demon in a way or something which is an interesting thought for the hit and run plot and the drugs plot we get nothing explicitly for those in this episode however either one of those or both of those could be the thing that led to Chad's arrest. So I guess you see their payoff in that and their transformation into a new storyline of him sitting in jail. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Tomorrow's episode is going to cover the mythology of part 14, and there's quite a lot to discuss there. So check that out and see you then.